would Jesus pray for? What are the things that would be on his heart? And we're told that. This morning we want to look at the first five verses only, because in it Jesus prays for himself. Jesus spoke these words, lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. My son Nathan loves reunions with me. What I mean by that is when I travel, I always make it a point to bring something back from where I was even if it's a little token anything, so that the reunion is something he looks forward to. And yesterday I had been traveling this week and I got back into town and true to form, Nathan runs up, gives me a big hug, and then uh, would often ask, well, what'd you get me? <laughs> and this last year we planned a reunion, but it was a family reunion. And it was a really great event. We were celebrating my parents' 50th wedding anniversary. We decided to do it a little bit early. We did it in April and the sons, uh, my parents' three sons, we planned it, and uh, we decided that since we hadn't been together in so long, we'd get everybody together for a nice three-day family reunion and celebrate their anniversary. We, uh, we did it in a place called Death Valley, California, because my brother's a golf pro in the area, and he gets great rates on rooms. He's the PGA pro at the course, and there's a little resort down there called Furnace Creek Inn. So I said, Nathan, we're going to have a big family reunion. He said, Daddy, where? I said, Death Valley. And he said, Daddy, no, please. We'll all die if we go to Death Valley. We can't go there. He was certain that he would die if he went to that place. Jesus Christ in John 17 is looking forward to a reunion with his Father. He's about to see him and have the glory that he once shared with him restored. And he looks past, so to speak, the valley of the shadow of death. The cross is upon him. He's about to take the sins of the world completely upon his own body. But he looks forward to the glory, having recollected the gifts that his Father had given to him, having remembered the eternal life that he gave to those who followed him, and looking forward to that glory, he has this prayer to his Father. And I would bring to your attention what Jesus is said of him in John chapter 13. It sort of opens up this chapter. We read it last week. Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to his Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now we're going to look at today just the first five verses. Jesus prays for himself. And just in case there's some of you who think, well, it's unspiritual to pray for yourself. If you're really spiritual, you'll pray for others. Well, Jesus prayed for himself. And then he instructed his disciples, ask and it shall be given. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. In fact, I think a lot of times we should be praying for ourselves because we're to blame for things when often instead we will think, well, it's the other people who are to blame. Boy, I need to pray for them. There was a church bulletin, who, and as you know, church bulletins often have blunders in them. 
misprints. Sometimes they're very humorous. And there was one particular church that had a blunder in its bulletin one Sunday morning. Instead of the word life, and the name of the sermon that morning was how to change your life through prayer. They accidentally put a W instead of an L there. And it read, how to change your wife through prayer. And last minute they showed the pastor, we've made a mistake. And he said, leave it, somebody's going to need that one. So often we're thinking other people are to blame. It's the woman, Lord, that you've given me. We pray for her when it should be ourself that we are praying for. So Jesus prays for himself. And in the first five verses, I've divided it up this way. First of all, there is a request. Secondly, there is a recollection. Jesus has but one request in the first five verses for himself. And then he recalls gifts in verse 2 and in verse 3. First of all, look at verse 1 with me. It's the request that Jesus makes. Glory is requested. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. Then down in verse 5, he says it again, but he goes back to prehistoric times. Before the world began, he mentions this glory. Now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I think to fully understand this, we need to go back to another portion of Scripture and see exactly what is going on to understand the glory that Jesus is speaking about. So would you turn to Philippians chapter 2? As I'm fond of saying, flip over to Philippians chapter 2, and we get to that classic portion of Scripture, the emptying out of Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's a few things we notice in looking at these verses. First of all, Jesus always existed as God. It says, being in the form of God. Or as if you have a New International Version, it reads, who being in very nature God. That's a better translation. It speaks of the essence, the unchanging nature of a person. You see, Jesus didn't become God. He always was God. His deity was pre-Bethlehem, pre-Mary, pre-Earth. He always was God, even before He was a man upon this earth and and afterwards, after He became a man. There are people, and, and you know who they are, who say that Jesus never claimed to be God. They'll come knocking at your door with magazines. And when you get into a conversation with them, they say, The church through the centuries made up this idea that Jesus was God. But they'll say, Jesus himself never claimed to be God. When I hear a statement like that, I wonder, 
if these people ever read the New Testament at all. Jesus claimed to be God all the time. When he was tempted by the devil, first of all, out in the wilderness, Jesus said, Worship God and Him only shall you serve. But Jesus accepted worship Himself. When Thomas said, My Lord and my God, Jesus didn't say, No, Thomas, you got it all wrong. I never claimed to be God. He accepted that worship. Or do you remember the time when the paralytic was let down through that opening in the roof and he was placed before Jesus in Capernaum? Jesus looked at that man who needed a healing and he said, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. The Pharisees were all up in arms. They said, that's blasphemy. For no one can forgive sins except God. They got no argument from Jesus on that one. They were right. And then very boldly in John chapter 8, Jesus told the religious leaders, before Abraham was, I am. I existed before Abraham. They knew exactly what he was claiming to be. They took up stones to kill him. Jesus said, many good works have I done. For which good work do you stone me? They said, we're not stoning you for a good work, but because you, being a man, are continually making yourself God. He always continually claimed that he was God. Which, by the way, helps us understand the need for the virgin birth. People say, well, is the idea of Jesus being born of a virgin really all that essential? Absolutely. We see the need for it here. He was God. He existed before anyone else, before the world. Now, every baby who's born never existed until the time he was born. Jesus existed before his mother. He's the only person who lived before he was born. He pre-existed. And it says here in Philippians, he came in the form of a man. Look also at verse 6, the second part of it. It said, He did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Jesus always existed as God, and he never thought it robbery. Literally, something to be grasped, held on to at all cost, the glory of God. Now remember, Jesus said, Father, I'm praying that I'll have the glory that I had with you before the world ever was. You see, Jesus had the rights, the privileges, and the glory of deity. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says concerning Jesus. He is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact representation of his being. Now, question. This is not just a fine point. Did Jesus lay aside his deity when he came to the earth? Absolutely not. Jesus veiled his deity. He did not void it. He laid aside the prerogatives, or I should say some of the prerogatives of deity. But he never laid aside it. He was fully God when he came to this earth. But it was veiled. We sing a song every Christmas. Hark the herald angels. It says, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail incarnate deity. Pleased with man on earth to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. He was God, but that glory was veiled. Now from time to time in the New Testament... You see where the veil lifts. Jesus, remember, went to a high mountain with his disciples and was transfigured before them. He was shining and gleaming like the sun. His garments were radiating. 
We read of that and we think, what a miracle! Well, actually, the miracle wasn't that Jesus was shining like the sun. The miracle was that he didn't do it all the time. That's the miracle. That's the veiling of the deity and the glory that we see in Jesus' life. Then look at verse 7 and 8. We see that Jesus steps into our world. He had glory with God. He was God from the beginning, but he stepped into our world. It says, He made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of man, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Made himself of no reputation is the Greek word ekonosan. It comes from the word kenosis, which means to pour something out to the very last drop, to take something and to empty it to the last drop. Now, how did Jesus do that? When Jesus came to the earth, when God became flesh, did he do it in a blaze of light? Did he come as the highest philosophic intellect that the Greeks and Romans ever saw? Did he come as a military general? No, he came as a baby. And was he born in the best hospital with the best OBGYN physician that the Roman Empire had? No, how about a beat-up old stable in the arms of a peasant woman named Mary? Now, I want you to think for a minute about culture shock. If you've ever traveled to a foreign country, especially a very low-level third-world country, and I've traveled to several of them. There is an amount of culture shock, especially if you're there. You can't drink water the same way. There's no ice cubes. There's no air conditioning. There's not beds many times like we have them. There's lots of big bugs that carry you away places. I mean, it's bad. (laughs) Culture shock, it's different. Imagine the ultimate culture shock of knowing only eternal glory with the Father and coming to this place in a stable. Philip Keller has a great book and he talks about the incarnation. He explains it in graphic detail. He said, The sheep corral, filthy as only an eastern animal enclosure can be, reeked pungently with manure and urine accumulated across the seasons. Joseph cleared a corner just large enough for Mary to lie down. Birth pains had started She writhed in agony on the ground. There, alone, unaided, without strangers or friends to witness her ordeal in the darkness, Mary delivered her son. A more lowly or humble birth is impossible to imagine. It was the unpretentious entrance, the stage entrance of the Son of Man, the Son of God, the very God in human guise and form upon earth's stage. In the dim darkness of the stable, A new sound was heard. The infant cry of the newborn babe came clearly. For the first time, deity was articulated directly in sounds expressed through a human body. Those sounds brought cheer and comfort and courage to Mary and Joseph. These peasant parents were the first of multiplied millions upon millions who in the centuries to follow would be cheered and comforted by the sounds that came from that voice. Eternal God enjoying all of the glory that deity had, emptying himself to the last drop, becoming a man, being born as a peasant, and walking the earth. And did you know when Jesus walked the earth, 
Nobody would recognize him as being different from anyone else. He didn't glow. I know the cards in the picture show him with halos on, glowing a little bit. He didn't glow. He wore a tunic, he wore sandals, and he paid taxes like everyone else. Even the Creator was not tax-exempt. Nobody would have recognized him. And people would approach him. And because he was in the form of a servant, an ordinary person, people could be real with him. People could be themselves with him. I think of the woman at the well of Samaria who didn't realize that she was dealing with God. And she had snippy little answers in the conversation Jesus had with her at that well that day. Until finally she realized she wasn't dealing with an ordinary person. She couldn't tell right off the bat. But Jesus said, you know, you've been married five times and you're living with a man who's not your husband. She knew no one could just know that. And she said, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. And she got really religious all of a sudden. But up to that point, she was just very real and very normal because Jesus' glory was veiled. Now, when Jesus came to this earth, poured himself out, became a man, he came to reveal God. That was one of the purposes of the incarnation. He came to reveal God, live a perfect sinless life, and die an atoning death. He revealed God. How did he do it? Well, he didn't do it with theological precepts. He did it in person. So that when you look at Jesus, you say, oh, that's what God's like. Remember, he said to Philip, if you've seen me, what? You've seen my Father. And so if you see Jesus teaching the multitudes, you see a God who is concerned that people know truth. You see Jesus touching lepers, whores. You see a God who loves those who are unlovable, those who are discounted among society. You see Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, and you see the heart of God who is saddened because sin separates between God and man. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus came to put God in touchable form. I love the story. I've told it to you of the little girl who was always scared whenever the lightning peeled and uh, flashed outside of her window. And one night there was a great electrical storm. The sound was outrageous. The flashes of lightning scared her. She ran into her parents' room and clutched her mommy. And she was shaking and her mommy comforted her and said, Oh, darling, I've told you before that when the thunder and the lightning get so bad, you can talk to Jesus. He's always with you. He's always near you. She said, Yes, I know, Mommy. But when the lightning and thunder get that bad, I want somebody with skin on them. Well, Jesus came as God with skin on Him. So that if you've seen Him, you've seen the Father. He poured Himself to the last drop. And he prayed that his glory would be restored. The glory that he had with the Father before the world was. The time was up. The hour had come. The atonement was right before him. And we should also note that his prayer was answered. Because we read then in verse 9 of Philippians, Therefore God also has highly exalted him. After Jesus ascended into heaven, this took place. Given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on the earth, of those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is now in glory. It has been restored. 
Stephen saw it as he was dying a first martyr's death. He looked up and he saw the glory of God and the Son of God standing at the right hand of the glory of God. The book of Revelation, John sees Jesus glorified in brilliant array in the first chapter and throughout the glory of the Lamb. Now look with me at verse 2. We've seen the request. Glory is requested. In verse 2 and 3, gifts are recollected. That's the second portion of uh, this prayer this morning. And there's three gifts mentioned. In one verse, Jesus mentioned the word given or give three times. Let's look at it. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now Jesus mentions three gifts. The first two are gifts that the Father gave the Son. The third is a gift the Son gives to people. There is authority that Jesus mentions. There's people that Jesus mentions. And then there's eternal life. Let's look at them. The first part of verse 2, you have given him authority over all flesh. The first gift that Jesus mentions is the gift of authority. The word is exousia in the Greek language. Exousia, which means power or the right to govern, the right to rule, to be in charge. Father, you have given me, the Son, the power, the exousia, the right to rule over all flesh. Well, that's quite a statement. Now, what does it mean that Jesus has authority? Well, first of all, he has authority over creation, doesn't he? Jesus himself, the Bible says, is the creator. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him And without him, there was not anything made that has been made. Jesus is the creator. He has authority over his creation. Not only did he create the world, but he maintains and sustains the world. The book of Colossians, chapter 1. And Jesus is before all things, and by him all things are held tightly together. You see, folks, it's Jesus Christ who has a firm grip on the elements of this world. It's Jesus Christ who's made the universe into an ordered system rather than a chaos, an unformed mass. Now imagine what would happen if Jesus decided to loosen his grip a little bit on that which he holds tightly together, that which he has created. If he said, you know, this is a little tiring. I'm going to relax my grip that I have on the universe. This ordered system is changed a little bit. I'm going to move the sun a little bit further away from the earth, or I'm going to turn down the temperature of the sun. We'll look at it this way. We know that the surface temperature of the sun is 12,000 degrees Fahrenheit, give or take a few. It's 93 million miles away from the earth. If you were to turn down the temperature or turn up the temperature of the sun or move the earth farther away or closer to the sun, life would not be able to be sustained on this planet. It's in perfect balance. Then there's the earth, which is tilted on its axis 23 and a third degrees, which gives us the balance of four seasons. Take it off of that tilt, and life would be so upset, the biosphere would be out of whack, life wouldn't be able to be sustained on planet earth. 
He holds things tightly together. He holds the atoms together. People say, what holds all of these atoms tightly together? Is it atomic glue? No, it's Jesus Christ. Several years ago, man did a very daring but dastardly thing. They untied the atom. And we saw firsthand the devastation of unleashing the power of an untied atom upon the world. Imagine when Jesus says, all right, it's judgment time. He just relaxes his grip. And Peter says, the elements will melt with a fervent heat. So the Father has given Jesus authority over all flesh. He has authority over creation. Secondly, he has authority over the church, supposedly. Supposedly, Jesus is the head giving the orders to every one of us. Every one of you have a ministry. And Jesus wants to direct your life. I would ask you this question. Are you under the authority of God? Is He in control of your life? Have you submitted your life to Him? Have you surrendered your activities to Him to be used for the purpose of God? A third thing we should note is that Jesus has authority over all flesh in terms of judgment. Say, oh, I don't like to hear about judgment. Well, you're going to hear about judgment because Jesus Himself said in John chapter 5, the Father judges no one, but the Father has entrusted all judgment to the Son. One day people will stand and be judged by Jesus Christ Himself. In a parable that Jesus gave to His disciples in Matthew chapter 13, He said, The Son of Man will send out His angels. They will weed out of His kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. And they will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You say, but wait a minute, I thought Jesus is the Savior. He is. But if you refuse Him as Savior, you will face Him as judge. One day He will judge the heaven and the earth. Now I've got to say this. The fact that Jesus was once in glory with the Father and emptied Himself and became a man gives Him the right to judge man. No one will ever be able to shake their fists and say, it's not fair for you to judge us. After all, you were just tucked up in heaven in that pampered state all this time. You don't know what it's like to be one of us. There was a story that somebody handed me. It says, at the end of time, billions of people were scattered on a great plain before God's throne. Some of the groups near the front talked heatedly, not with cringing shame, but with belligerence. How can God judge us? What a ripoff. How can he know about suffering? Snapped a cynical brunette. She jerked back a sleeve to reveal a tattooed number from a Nazi concentration camp. We endure terror, beatings, torture, death. In another group, a black man lowered his collar. And what about this, he demanded, showing an ugly rope burn. I was lynched for no crime except being black. We have suffocated in slave ships. We've been wrenched from loved ones. We've toiled till only death gave us release. Far out across the plain were hundreds of such oppressed minorities. Each had a complaint against God for the evil and the suffering he permitted in the world. How privileged God was to live in heaven where there's no repression, all with sweetness and light, no weeping, no fear, no hunger, no hatred. Indeed, what did God know about the hassles that man had in the world? And so each of these oppressed minorities sent out a leader, chosen because he had suffered the most. 
There was a Jew, a black, an untouchable from India, an illegitimate son, a prisoner of war, an Indian, and one from a Siberian slave camp. In the center of the plain, they consulted with each other. At last, they were ready to present their case to God. It was rather simple. Before God would be qualified to be their judge, he must endure what they had endured. Their decision was that God should be sentenced to live on the earth as a man. But because he was God, they set certain safeguards to be sure that he did not use his divine powers to help himself. Let him be born a minority, a Jew. Let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted so that many will question who his father really is. Let him champion a cause so just but so radical that it brings down upon him the hate and condemnation of the establishment and every major traditional and established religious authority. Let him be the object of put-downs, ridicule. Let him be spat upon and labeled mad. Let him be betrayed by his closest friends. And let him be indicted on false charges tried before a prejudiced jury. Let him experience what it's like to be terribly alone and abandoned by every living thing. Let him be tortured. Let him die. Let him die the most humiliating death. After each leader stepped forward and announced his position and his portion of the sentence, a loud approval went up from the great throng of people. When the last had finished pronouncing sentence, there was a long silence. No one uttered a word. No one moved. For suddenly they all knew that God had already served his sentence. Father, you have given me the Son authority over all flesh, and he has authority over judgment, and one day he will judge. Look also at verse 2. The second gift Jesus mentions that his Father gives him is the gift of people. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given to him. Now, he mentions this several times in these verses. Look down at verse 6. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. Look down at verse 9. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Down at verse 11. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father. Keep through your name those whom you have given me that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. Have you ever had someone deride you? Maybe they thought you were self-righteous, or maybe you did something, or you said something in a conversation that put them off, and they retaliated. Maybe they said something like, Well, who do you think you are, God's gift to the world? When somebody does that again, if you really want to ruffle their feathers, you might say, no, I'm not God's gift to the world. I'm God's gift to Jesus Christ. Jesus is God's gift to the world. But I'm God's gift to Jesus. Now, they're going to really get angry when you say that. But that's the truth. All of the people that come by the bidding of the Father to Jesus, God gives to His Son as a gift. They're called Christians. We bear His name. And if you're part of God's family, you're a gift that God has given to His Son. And so Jesus praying, about ready to go through the cross, about ready to enter into glory, what gift will the Father give to His Son? What gift would be appropriate? 
What would a heavenly father give to this heavenly son? What's the best gift? Somebody might say, well, I think God could have given him maybe mansions in heaven. That wouldn't be an appropriate gift. Jesus himself said he was the preparer of mansions. Well, maybe God could give him new galaxies. Why? Jesus created all the existing ones and can create billions more. Out of all the things the father could give to his son in that father and child reunion, Jesus said, these people, these men, these women, that's the gift that you have given me. And I would say that that's a gift that satisfied Jesus. For in Hebrews it tells us, He is the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross. You are the joy that was set before Jesus. He looked through eternity and He thought, George, Randy, Pete, Frank, Alice, they're all going to come to Jesus Christ. That's the gift. It's worth going to the cross to see them saved. And I'll tell you what, if there's a thought that should elevate you, Christian, there it is. We're talking so much today about self-esteem. You get real esteem when you realize how precious you are to God and how God esteems you and God loves you. And you become a gift to Jesus. There was a little girl in Sunday school who wrote this letter to God, true letter. Dear God, I bet it's very hard for you to love all of everybody in the whole world all the time. There are only four people in our family and I can never do it. I have trouble with four. You love everybody. God loves you enough to say, the gift that I'll give my son are those that come to him by faith. That's going to be a gift. Here, son, here's the package. Then finally, look also in verse 2 and 3. The third gift that is mentioned is a gift that we receive. We become a gift to Jesus, but we receive a gift called eternal life. You've given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. Verse 3 qualifies eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What does eternal life mean? That is a phrase that Christians use and probably don't even realize what it means. Well, what does it mean? First of all, it doesn't mean reincarnated life. You didn't exist before you were born. You weren't a monkey in a previous lifetime, reincarnated as a person, and if you're really good, you'll be a cow in the next generation. You never existed before. And after you live upon the earth now and die, you'll never exist on the earth again, but you will live forever. But eternal life doesn't just mean living forever. It's not extended life, which is the emphasis of a lot of people these days, especially as we get older. What can I do to extend my life? Where's the fountain of youth? What cream will take those wrinkles away? What liposuction, what surgery will make me young and keep me young? I often see specials on television, 60 Minutes, 2020, of people's eternal quest to be eternal. Cryonics, I'll let them freeze me, and when they have the technology, they'll wake me up and they'll thaw me out and they'll keep me preserved for generations. There was on 2020 special one night, three people they interviewed who actually believed they would never physically die. That they would go on living and living and living in that body forever. As I was watching that, I thought, no, not only are these people deluded, but I'd love to interview them in about 25 years, especially showing them a picture of that interview. Then and now, count the wrinkles. 
I was watching on another television special custom-made caskets that you could buy equipped with a high-fidelity CD system, (laughs) video cam with the video monitor inside the casket, and a lens outside the casket where you could go up to the grave, turn it on, and you talk, they show this person, into the lens of the camera. You'd think, nobody would be that brain dead to buy something like that. Oh, you'd be surprised. They're selling like hotcakes. That's not eternal life. The word that Jesus used here, eternal life, ionias zoe, could be translated age, abiding life. It's not a quantity of time. It's a quality of experience that begins now. It begins now and it lasts for an eternity. But you've got to know this. In, in, in terms of living forever, every single person has that kind of eternal life. Every person will live forever. Every soul will live eternally, either before God or banished from God for all of eternity. But we'll all have that kind of eternal life. What Jesus is speaking about is a quality of experience, age-abiding life. Jesus said, He who hears my word and believes in me and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. See, it's a quality. I remember a happy hippie that I saw. It's the only way I can describe him. He had a beat-up old Volkswagen bus. It was shaking as he would start it up, barely hanging together, but he had a brand-new bumper sticker on his car that said, Without Jesus, you ain't living. Had a big smile on his face as he chugged down the road at four miles per hour, top speed. He was happy. He had eternal life. He had age-abiding life. He had a quality of experience. He didn't have riches. He, too, was growing old but he had eternal life. Now here Jesus describes eternal life in verse 3 as knowing God. This is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Do you know God? Most Americans would say, yeah, of course I know God. Who doesn't know God in this country? After all, he's a citizen of this country. I'm an American. I know God. You know, there's different ways of knowing things. First of all, there's an awareness. And people say, oh, I know God. What they really mean is, I'm aware there is a God. Example, you may be aware that there's a postal system in the United States, but that's about all. You get your mail, you're aware they're out there, but you just have an awareness. Some of you have moved to phase two, the information phase. You're not only aware there's a postal system, You know the postmaster general by name. You know the code, the dress code of the postal service. You might even know your mailman's, or I should say mail persons, to be politically correct, name. You might know that person's name. But the word Jesus used here, that they might know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, doesn't mean awareness, doesn't mean information, The word is gnosko. It means to have a personal acquaintance with, a relationship of intimacy, to have experienced that person. So you might know the postmaster general's name, but do you know him personally? Have you met him? Have you sat down and talked with him? Do you have an ongoing relationship? No, probably not. Or I would say few of you do. Father, eternal life is people who know you intimately in a relationship with you. You say, how can I know God? 
How can I have a relationship with God? Well, you have to be born into it. Just like you were born physically, you have to be born spiritually. Jesus called it born again. When you're born physically, you exist physically. When you're born spiritually, you enter into a relationship with God that brings everlasting, eternal, age-abiding life. What's the opposite of eternal life? Eternal death. Does that mean just when I die physically? No. That's physical death. There's another death, far worse. It's called eternal separation from God. The Bible calls it the second death in Revelation chapter 20. There's two lives. There's two deaths. There's physical life. There's spiritual life. There's physical death and there is spiritual death. Look at it this way. If you're born once, you're going to die twice. If you're only born physically but not born again spiritually, you will die physically and you will die spiritually forever separated from God, the Bible says. If you're born twice, you'll die once. Born physically, born spiritually, you'll only die at the most physically unless the Lord comes first. But that's the worst that will happen. But you'll live eternally with Him. Have you received God's gift? Eternal life. It's a gift that Jesus gives to those who say, I receive it. I believe what you've done for me on the cross. I admit I'm a sinner. Give me this gift. When you receive his gift, you become a gift to Jesus. That's relationship. There's an old Jewish proverb that said, Whoever walks toward God one cubit, God runs toward him two cubits. God is looking for you today. And if you would take one step toward him... He would take many steps toward you and draw near to you, giving you eternal life, giving you to his Son as a gift. Father, we are amazed at the kind of love and the kind of relationship that is expressed in the Bible. While there are so many people that try to push God at a distance, Jesus came to bring God near, God in flesh, touchable, seeable, hearable, and then to give eternal life as to many who would receive it. Lord, I pray that we would not complicate our relationship with you. We would not try to add things to it, not try to bog it down, but we'd keep it simple. That we would come in humility, that we would receive your gift of eternal life. And then in that reception of the gift, we realize that somehow we become a gift to your son. We belong to him. And we bear the name Christian. I pray, Lord, we bear it proudly.